Well, for those of you who pay attention to the podcast closely or follow me on Instagram, you'll know that I've got a new guitar that I've been building this semester. It's done, it's polished up, it's out of the house for the first time a couple of nights ago. There's always a little bit of a, you know, uh, I don't know, apprehension when you take something like that out of the house. You're like, how's this going to sound, you know? It sounds pretty good sitting here in front of this condenser microphone or, you know, whatever. But you're going to get it into the social environment of some expensive Martins and maybe an old Gibson. And you're going to really have to hear how it stands up to, you know, some, some legit guitars. I don't know, I guess I always feel like that guitar. I've got such a a level of social anxiety that uh, often things like that are fraught for me, you know? One thing that I thought was interesting, though, since this was kind of a first outing for a lot of people, a lot of us in the group, after uh, we've been in quarantine, it uh, allowed us to have a kind of conversation that we don't ordinarily have. It was kind of funny because one of the guys who was there, he's probably listening to the podcast, you know who you are. Thanks. Was around at one of my uh, peak anxiety moments, my glossophobic nightmare. And we've never talked about it, so he might not even know that. I guess he will now. You know, I've been in, in my life in a lot of truly terrifying public speaking situations. Every once in a while they'll ask you to give a talk and you'll show up thinking there'll be a few people there and then there are 200 or 300 people there. I gave a talk a few years ago at the at a lecture series that we have here and uh, they were surprised. People kept showing up. They kept adding more chairs. They're like, wow, this many people never show up. Now, I, I don't know why. I mean, I didn't do anything to make that happen. But uh, but it went from a little talk to this big thing. I've played that room many times. And I want to tell you that I wish I could pack it that full with my guitar. You know, I think um, playing music and being a professional talker have uh, really worked in tandem with each other in my life to sort of help me find some tools for dealing with my level of anxiety. And that's not to say that I've mastered it or that I have uh, sufficient tools all the time. It's weird. Some situations I just feel overwhelmed and then other situations I feel totally confident. It just depends, I guess. But but the situation I'm talking about with my, with my friend, you know, he, he's a religious studies professor. He's uh, maybe 10 years older than me. He was one of the people um, when I first came to the university who I really looked up to and admired. I, I still do, you know. And we had a student in common. And, you know, I talk about religion. I mean, I teach, you know, early American literature. And so, uh, you know, anyway, the student asked me if I wanted to come and, and give a talk to his club about, uh, you know, is, is America a Christian nation or something like that? So, you know, I like this guy a whole lot. And I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll come talk to your club. You know, that's that's fine. And I'm not going to say he lied to me, but this mother scratcher lied to me. 
I mean, he said, you know, you just come and talk to my club. It'll just be a little thing, you know. There'll be a some students will be able to just sit around and have a conversation. And I'm like, okay, cool. And, you know, I've talked to these student things a hundred times, so I'm thinking I'm going to walk in there and there'll be six or seven students and we'll talk about how Nixon was a Quaker or something, you know. And uh, so I didn't prepare anything. And, and I'm, I'm happy winging it most of the time, but I walk in this room and my buddy's there, some guy I don't know, and my dean. And they all got books stacked up on their table. And there are a hundred people in the room, including probably 15, 20 professors. Bunch of people I don't know. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> I mean, like, if you had a nightmare, like, you know, what, what would be a nightmare scenario? I've had a few of them, you know. I had another one I gave a, a paper at a big Moby Dick con conference one time and walked in there. And I saw 10 of the people I cited in my paper. Oh, that was a nightmare. But, you know, you can kind of predict that. You knew all of those people were going to be there. But this, you know, like when you have that dream and you wake up and you have to give a presentation before the faculty and you're unprepared, that was not a dream. Thank God my dean and my buddy went first and I could kind of try to hash something out. My dean takes out all these notes and he basically gives a conference presentation. And I'm like, this is this is this is not what I signed up for here. I signed up for a conversation with no preparation. You know, he talked for I don't know, 15 minutes. <laughs> and then my buddy, and and again, like at, at this point, we weren't we didn't like hang out with each other that much. I, he was just somebody that I did and still really do respect. I, I think that he's, you know, really insightful scholar and uh despite being the most you know genial and laid-back guy you could be around i i frankly was really intimidated by him and you know the other guy whatever he says he's still my dean he still had i guess a promotion to hold over my head you know so they both give these really informed presentations and then i uh and by the way i mean they're both religious studies professors, right? I mean, they're like, it'd be like if I went to like, uh, you know, a science thing, like, and uh, now these scientists will talk about <laughs> atoms and then some poet's going to make jokes. I, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, I kind of mutter through some kind of gibberish and the next guy a little bit mutters through some gibberish, too. I don't really remember much about what I said, to tell you the truth. I got a couple of laughs, and I think I had a, and I think I had a couple of things to say that maybe people thought were insightful. The only thing I really remember is that I got the first question, and a guy says, I got a comment and then a question. I'm like, okay, here we go. I mean, this is just like, this is just like you walk out of your office and you accidentally stumble into a professional conference. This is not what I thought I was doing. And uh says the first the comment. That's a pretty good mustache. And this was I don't know 7 or 8 years ago. I was I was rocking the long curled up handlebar mustache at the time before all these hipsters stole my look and made me have to change it up. This guy had a pretty great mustache, too, and as he pointed out, mine wasn't quite up to his 
his speed. But then he asked me the first question, and the question and answer part of it was actually, you know, it was fine. It was it was charming. It was it was it was what I thought I was signing up for when this no count son of a gun asked me to walk in and start talking. Anyway, for someone who can and has gone off the rails in public speaking situations in the past, it was a lot. You know, most of the people I play music with were pros when they were younger. Some of them had good recording deals. Some of them still have, you know, still get mailbox money for records they played on, songs they wrote. and Not all of them, but, you know, a, a lot of them. Uh, and... Uh, and whenever they, you know, whenever they ask me, like, you know, how come, you know, how come you didn't do the road? How come you didn't do this? How, what, you know, how come your bands didn't, you know, do this or that? And I tell them, like, oh, I don't know, you know, I didn't really have my chops together in those days. And, and also I tell them what was actually true also was that, you know, I was really spending a tremendous amount of time reading and doing the kind of preparation for my real job, not my my semi-pro guitar player career, but my, you know, but my, my actual English professor job. And uh, I was very sort of engaged intellectually in that. But really the real reason was that I had a level of stage fright and social anxiety that prevented me from ever doing that. I, I simply couldn't perform when I was in my 20s. It just wouldn't happen. I couldn't physically allow myself to do it. And I... Uh, didn't know if I was going to be able to teach either until I was well into graduate school and it came time to step into that classroom and see if I could make this happen. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I got a phone call from the chair of the English department from a local community college a few days before school started. And, you know, they had somebody not show or move the schedule around. So after a stressful interview with a panel of people and a weekend to prepare the class, I walked into the classroom for the first time. And I just thought like, wow, I don't know if I can do this. One thing that threw me off, I taught one class at uh, you know the university where I was studying, but got in this room and there were 35 people in there, which was more than I was used to, and five or six of them were my parents' age. And I just didn't know if I could teach them for some reason. I mean, it took me a while to realize that I had a kind of expertise that they were looking for or wouldn't have signed up for the class, but I, it was a bit of an adjustment for me. And I remember the first day, I just sort of suddenly gave them a little in-class writing thing and I walked out of the room and I had a full-scale panic attack I mean, I guess not a full-scale panic attack. I didn't pass out. I was just sweating profusely, having a hard time breathing. I get this narrowing of vision when that happens, this tunnel vision, and I start seeing myself from the other person's perspective and start being self-conscious about the fact that I'm sweating like Louis Armstrong. I went in the bathroom, threw some water on my face, and I decided, you know, I either have to master this and go in there and face this, or I have to find something else to study and do some other thing because this is it. This is this is this is the point of delivery <laughs> that I have prepared for. And if I can't do it now, 
then I can't do it. You know, and uh, it was around that time that I started to uh, play music in public, and I stopped doing the thing I do, which would be rehearse with a band and kind of get comfortable with them and then find some reason why I didn't want to go play gigs with them. I've done, I guess, a lot of things in my life where I seemed like I was just being arrogant or being a jerk, but really I was just responding to my crazy fight, flight, or freeze from my anxiety. But, you know, I kind of thought, like, well, what's what's the worst that can happen? Everyone sweats on the bandstand. I guess it doesn't show as much up there. There's also this protected space. And I, I knew, I mean, I had some idea of what the worst was that could happen was, you know. I knew the story about Ornette Coleman. Here's, a, here's an article from The New Yorker. In Louisiana in 1949, Coleman was summoned from the bandstand and beaten bloody by a mob, which also destroyed his saxophone. That was, as the article points out, 10 years before Shape of Jazz to Come, and he was declared a genius by the great Leonard Bernstein. So, uh, I don't know. I had a sense of what the worst was, but I also had a sense that it was worse to not do it than it was to do it. And I, again, not going to say I mastered this. I, I suddenly sometimes break into a sweat and feel panicked and feel like I got to escape from the most innocuous kind of conversation with the nicest people. I remember reading that Kierkegaard book, The Concept of Anxiety. I thought, you know, there's nothing conceptual about this at all to me. This is a practical problem to get over. A lot of artists, of course, have dealt with their anxiety. People like to talk about the scream as an anxiety painting, which it is, that Edward Monk painting from 1894. You know, it is. It's a good one, but... The year before that, he painted a really interesting painting that's just called Anxiety, and it shows these people going on a bridge, I guess. It's a railway and kind of a cliff. There's a, a lake in the background. It has the same swirling, uh, wispy sky with the kind of red and yellow colors that uh, that are in the scream. It's, a, it's definitely a companion piece to the scream, but... Whereas the scream has this distorted face, howling. The painting anxiety just has these sort of ordinary looking, I guess, you know, uh, average 19th century Norwegians. <laughs> it's, in, it's in Norway. The painting's in Oslo at the Monk Museum. I've never been there. I've never seen it. I'd like to see it. But anyway, um, at the front of them, you know, so they're, they're just all of these sort of... Um, black-coated men with black hats on. Some of them have top hats. There may be some other women in the background, but there's a woman in the foreground, and she has kind of a, a reddish hat on. It might even be like more like a wrap, but it looks more like a hat that's pushed back. Her hair is parted. Her face is very symmetrical, thrust right up in front, and then she has what looks like either a, like a... I don't know what you call that, like, uh, you know, collar, white collar, or it might be her hands around her neck, but it doesn't really matter. She looks stricken. She looks panicked. And 
when you look at her face, you see all of these people behind her looking at you and you suddenly, if you're sympathetic to the concept of anxiety, I guess, you feel exactly how she feels that, that suddenly you're thrust out of your own space into feeling that people are surrounding you and staring at you and evaluating you in a way that you can't control and don't want. And what's really striking to me is that it's such an ordinary scene, and yet this level of anxiety for her is extraordinary. The, the scream is a kind of extreme painting, um, and in a way that doesn't really do justice to um, the sense of anxiety like that, which is out of proportion to how you ought to be feeling or you know how other people around you seem to be feeling. You know, this painting is definitely connected to the scream, but um, I think it's um, maybe better companion piece is, his, is Monk's uh, Evening on Carl Johann Street from uh, 1892, where it shows a similar kind of crowd scene. The faces are a little clearer, and they're not as uh, blurred by the uh, anxiety <laughs> and the narrowing of vision that I talked about, but... Um, Monk creates a line between uh, anxiety and loneliness, and I think that's interesting. I think that, um, you know, part of why I'm attracted, I think, to uh, late 19th and early 20th century American art is that loneliness is the great theme of American art of that period. And uh, there's some sort of connection between that and anxiety that I uh, understand personally and deeply in some way. You know, I think somehow in my soul, when I hear Hank Williams sing... I went down to the river to watch the fish swim by. I got to the river so lonesome I wanted to die. Oh, Lord, I jumped in the river, but the doggone river was dry. You know that one, Long Gone Lonesome Blues? That's a great one. I just get that, uh, you know, the loneliness there is a dispositional thing, not some sort of temporary situational uh, you know, thing he's going through. There's a guitar player I really like named William Tyler. He's got a, a great song called Modern, a great song, a great album called Modern Country Music. So it's instrumental music. It's beautiful. You should check it out. But he's got a song on it called Highway Anxiety. And uh, it's one of the most calming and relaxing things you'd ever imagine. It's not Cecil Taylor's unit structures or some other free jazz, which I have to admit does give me anxiety. Though uh, though not the aforementioned Ornette Coleman. He actually... I actually get with Ornette Coleman just fine. But William Tyler's Highway Anxiety just evokes this sort of space of the West. He's got that sort of long decay reverb. Sounds like a spaghetti Western. Not quite. It's not as, as exaggerated as that. But he's just got that ambient guitar sound. and It's a beautiful record. And I guess I would describe it as lonesome. And I think the reason it feels so warm and delicious to me is because lonesome seems to be uh, the shield against anxiety that I've retreated to in life. I don't know. I don't know why I'm talking about anxiety. I guess, you know, I'm thinking about we're all going back to the world, or most of us are going back to the world at this point. And, and, uh, and I think that we have a opportunity to have a conversation about what kind of uh, social situations we want to enter and we don't want to enter now. I think that this gives us a chance to reset on that. But I think, you know, when I think back about deciding to 
teach or deciding to play music publicly or deciding to say yes when somebody asks you to give a talk even though you don't know what you're walking into I think just having that idea that like I'm going to put myself out there even if I fail even at you know my age I've got no professional incentive to do any of this stuff and I don't get paid very often for playing music or not very much certainly not by the hour but putting myself in there and having that level of risk, I think, is something that keeps me going in life. And uh, I'm ready to jump back in it. Okay, friends, I hope you are too. I'm going to talk to you next week on the internet. Take care of yourselves. Be good to each other. And uh, remember to like, follow, and subscribe and share the podcast with a friend. I'll see you later.